look at uh, verse 30. Look at verse 30 there. These are the words of John the Baptist. Verse 30 of chapter 3. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. If I can encourage you to write that down right now as an affirmation, uh, perhaps in your bulletin, if you're taking notes this morning, write that somewhere, that he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the title of today's message. It is the big idea. It is the theme that Jesus must increase. And some call this the, uh, the law of ministry, and rightly so, but it is a simple, it is a, a profound truism that applies to everyone. Imagine if you are looking at a teeter-totter, a seesaw, right? And when one end is up, the other end is down. So in this instance, Jesus should be up and we should decrease. We should be down. But what happens in our lives, if we're honest, is often we become consumed with self and the reverse happens. And so we end up being elevated where Jesus is decreased. And so that's why the title of today's message and verse 30 there, Jesus must increase. Now there's much for us to examine in this passage. As you can see, 15 verses. Um, whether you have it in the app, and I'll walk through it in an outline for you as well in detail, but let me read to you verses 22 to 26. Again, let's dive right in, 22 to 36 of John chapter 3. It begins here, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Verse 27 John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And there's that verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son cannot see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This morning we want to look at first the setting. I'm going to take you through in this passage the the setting, the sentiment, and the 
support. And the first one here is the setting. And the very first thing we see in verse 22, it says, after these things. So it's after the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem for the first time in John chapter 2. After the Pharisee named Nicodemus, right? He came to Jesus in the quiet of the night earlier in chapter 3. And so after these things, the text continues, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So Jesus and his disciples, they leave the city of Jerusalem, and they head straight for the countryside. As a matter of fact, if you look down just a little further, based on John uh, 4, 35, chapter 4 here, 35, many believe Jesus spent up to six months with the disciples, likely training them, discipling the disciples, as well as baptizing. In that same chapter, chapter 4, verse 2 is interesting. It says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So I'm, I'm guessing in some sense, I mean, just to give an opinion here, this is probably happening in some way to avoid any kind of bragging that could take place. Hey, I was baptized by Jesus, but you, mm -mm, right? You could see how that would play out with something like this. Yours, <laughs> it doesn't count because you weren't baptized by Jesus, if you can imagine that. So Jesus is with the disciples and they are baptizing as was John, John the Baptist, verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So as, as soon as Jesus went into the regions of Judea to do ministry, John takes the, the lesser route and he heads to Anon, which is in Samaria. And I have to tell you, I love this already. As I'm reading this passage, John's last testimony, I'm in love with his words. And that's because you see that there's no competition. There's, there's a humble act in ministry taking place here. Yet he's doing the same thing, the exact same thing that Jesus is. And so you have their ministries overlapping here for a number of months. John is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness saying, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, whom Jesus says in Matthew eleven eleven, of all who have ever lived, none is greater. So John the Baptist, he's pointing to the light. And Jesus appears on the scene and John says, you guys know this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now they're both preaching repentance and encouraging and baptizing. Again, John 4 is helpful here. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was making and, in essence, baptizing more disciples than John. So apparently, Jesus' uh, popularity is increasing, while John's is decreasing, which is why we have, in our text this morning, we have this dispute that is taking place in verses 25 and 26 here. Look again at this. It says, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. By the way, that's baptism, but that's an Old Testament form of baptism. That would take us down a rabbit trail this morning that I'm choosing not to go. 
but it's not the same form of baptism completely of what we experience today because Jesus has not died and rose again, right? So that, that hasn't taken place. But we see here in verse 25 that there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about this. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and they're all coming to him. They're all coming to him. So they are choosing sides. They are picking sides here. Sort of like in 1 Corinthians 3 where you have um, Apollos or Paul. Do you remember that? It's that kind of choosing that's taking place here, but it's worse. It's worse because we're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the Messiah. And worse yet, they don't even mention his name. Look again at verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. Uh, you mean Jesus, right? That's, that's who you're talking about here. You wouldn't have had to say all that if you would just honor him and say his name. Just say his name. This is pure jealousy speaking in these words here. It's like they're saying, why are we in some, up in some isolated area like Samaria? Jesus has taken over. Don't you see that? We need to be there. And you see the competition. You see the human nature, our human nature, come out in those words. You, you can almost visualize what's taking place there. But they're saying it to a humble man. And this is not the first time in Scripture that a humble man was tested like this. In the Old Testament, that man was Moses. If you'd look for a moment with me at Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. Back in Numbers 11, a very similar event happened. We're still looking at the setting here. Numbers 11, 26. focus is on two in the camp of Israel, and Israel is being led through the wilderness, you may recall, at, at this point here. And in verse 26, it says, but two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the spirit rested upon them. Now, just a reminder, Old Testament, New Testament, come to faith in Christ, we are, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual as a means of God's blessing, would leave, would come back as a mean, means of God's blessing. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp, so they were preaching. And here it is, verse 27. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and, and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the people, Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Again, I love it. I absolutely love it. Moses is saying, you know, I wish that everyone was sharing the word of the Lord. 
there's no such thing as, as competitiveness in the Lord's ministry. We, we have the same goals. We have the, the same aim. There shouldn't be. No such thing, that is, with humble people. We are all seeking to see him high and lifted up, yes? Well, you guys sounded really good this morning singing. I'm not just saying it. I mean, in the front row, I could really hear you guys belting it out. It was beautiful. It's not about ourselves. It's about Christ. Joshua was taking it too far, if I can say that. And so were the followers of John, which brings us back to uh, John 3. John 3. And we get to the sentiment. There are, uh, if I can share with you, three distinct attitudes we find from John the Baptist as he responds to his disciples. And, and they form, as we know, his, his last recorded words in the Gospels. But before we tackle these three sentiments, let me just state that his reply to them, John the Baptist here, his reply is as instructive as it is convicting. As instructing as is instructive as it is convicting. Here the greatest man who ever lived is also one of the most humble, and perhaps that's why he is uh, can be called great. You know, John is bold. John the Baptist is blunt. I mean, John the Baptist is just going to say it. He's passionate. He's uh, a man of, of principle. And we know this from his life, as it's been told in the gospel accounts. This guy, this guy would not shy away from speaking the truth. I mean, he, he would do it even to the point if it meant losing his head, which he did. Essentially on a dare, he lost his head. But he was also sincere. He was full of faith uh, and humble. John the Baptist was a humble man. And look at these three sentiments with me found in verses 27 to 31. And before we even touch that, let me just also say that my prayer, one of my prayers this morning as we go through this, is that his attitude would also be ours. That that attitude that we're going to see from him, these three sentiments, that, that's, that, that love that he had for our Lord would be contagious here in the local body of Christ. And so first here we have the sentiment of sovereign grace. We see the sentiment of sovereign grace. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So John recognized that salvation, that, that spiritual gifts, that any form of ministry to others, it is not something you deserve. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you are somehow worthy of. No, no. It is the result of sovereign grace. It is a gift of grace, a gift of grace, just like every other gift God gives to us unworthy sinners. James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is given from above. And it goes on from the father of what? Of heaven, of lights, from the father of lights. But this this attitude is not something we only see in the life of John the Baptist. Listen to the Apostle Paul here in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Let me just read this to you. 
it's just a, a, a quick little verse here, but he says, through God's mercy, we have this ministry. That's an attitude. That's a good attitude. Through God's mercy, through his mercy, we have this ministry. His ministry is his gifts. All that he was able to do was a mercy flowing to an unworthy sinner based on God's sovereign grace. Again, you you can't earn it. You can't gain it. You can't achieve it, nor do you even deserve it. And that is John the Baptist's sentiment here. So when you see forward progress in your life, when you experience the blessing of being used to minister to another, do you know what I mean? And perhaps bearing some fruit. We're not always faithful. But in that moment, when you've actually been faithful in some way, when you get those opportunities to identify with Christ, regardless of how you are received, when you serve in the simplest of ways, John says, this should be our attitude, it has been given to you from heaven. It, it's a result of his sovereign plan, and it's by his loving grace. It really isn't about you or me, right? God in his sovereign grace, he purposed that it would in that moment fall in your lap. Whatever gifts you have, you know this, right? They are gifts, sovereign grace gifts. And it would be good for us to not lose sight of that, to not slip into an attitude in essence that uh, despises the gifts that God has granted to us in his wisdom. And John the Baptist, he was, he was delighted He was delighted to see Jesus' popularity growing and his own declining. He went on to say here in verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Sent. I did not earn this. This isn't about me. He must increase. It's, It's about Christ. And as a result of God's sovereign grace, He wanted to be a faithful forerunner to the Messiah. And he understood. He understood he was unworthy of what he had been given. And by the way, did you know that this is also true of Christ, the the sentiment of sovereign grace? Look at verse 35. Just jump down to 35 for a second here. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Even our Lord could say, and he did, that all he had, it was given to him from heaven from his father and so number one here we have the sentiment the attitude of sovereign grace and second here we see the sentiment of unspeakable privilege unspeakable privilege john gives us a a beautiful illustration of verse 29 he says he who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Now I want you just for a moment to picture a wedding up here. Picture a wedding ceremony that would be up here. Okay, so the bride would traditionally be to my right here and the bridegroom would be here. Now the friend of the bridegroom, usually called the best man, would be here, right? Now, in this instance, in this illustration, the friend of the bridegroom has a special place of honor in this wedding because he might have been the one who introduced them. 
So imagine the ceremony is taking place. And as it's about to take place, the friend of the bridegroom steps in front, I know it sounds absurd, steps in front of the groom and starts to recite the words and starts to grab the ring and put the ring on the finger. He says, nonsense. It's nonsense. Stop, stop. How offensive. What an ego, right? And so using this illustration, John says, hey, I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. Sure, I mean, I was, in some sense, humanly speaking, I was responsible for introducing the two. And Jesus here is the bridegroom. And the believers in the New, New, New Testament age is the church, right, is the, is the bride. But I'm only in a supporting secondary role. It's all about the bridegroom and the bride. John is only the friend of the bridegroom. And that to him is an unspeakable privilege. That's the attitude that's there. Even the end of verse 29, again, he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. There's no more room. My cup is running over. John is saying, don't you get it? I am so close to the groom, to the bridegroom, that I can hear what he's saying to his bride, to the church. And I love it. Oh, the joy. If you have an NIV Bible, it says that joy is mine and it is now complete. I love hearing the Messiah say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love hearing him call all to repentance and faith. I love seeing the people lining up to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. What more could a preacher want? What more could this friend and and this follower of Christ desire? So, so this joy of mine, John says, has been made full. And it's an unspeakable privilege. Again, when God is using you in a situation, you and I both know he does not need us. He does not need you and he doesn't need me here even this morning. But it is an unspeakable privilege to be those individuals, to be used of God which is why we have our signature text, verse 30. He's saying, I I am the best man. It's it's not about me. What what I have in position and in power and in possessions and privilege, it is all from above. It's sovereign grace. God's plan and God's gifting, it is not about me. I have been given an unspeakable privilege here. I have nothing really to say about me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. Nothing. Unspeakable. And privilege, the joy of being his friend? Well, calling Jesus my friend? It's all mine. The privileges, it's all mine. And so John then says, he must increase. I must decrease. Must is a great word here. You know what happens when you read a truth over and over again and you start to miss some of the key words? Like you, and, and sometimes you'll say it, you go, oh, I'll see, 
I'll see things I never saw before. And other times you just take certain words for granted. You never see it. This is one of those words. Until preparing this message, I kind of miss the word must. Look at this here. He must increase, but I must decrease. Must is a great word. Some, some commentators rightly call it a divine necessity. God's will. I mean, look back at verse 7. Verse 7. It says, you must be born again. You catch that? Verse 14. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, all a part of God's decreed will, a divine imperative. I mean, call it what you like, but these, these are not requests that are made by God. This is not like a, a happy suggestion. Please do this. Hi. That's not what this is. He must increase. He must, but I must decrease. And this this concept is it's countercultural to all we know, think, say, and do today, isn't it? I mean, social media, admittedly, it reverses this. And we kind of get trained in this. We all have this problem. I, I most of us do. <laughs> I must increase. Self-expression reverses this. I must increase. This speaks to where our identity lies, and it's an important question, a test of your worldview even. How do I really see myself? How do you really see yourself? I mean, day to day, moment to moment. Can you say, do you see yourself as a child of God? Do you see yourself as a friend of Christ? How about as a Christian, a little Christ? Because John, what's so amazing here, is he's just a man. John passes the test here. His answer is, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so we've seen the the sentiment, these attitudes of, of sovereign grace and unspeakable privilege. And now one more, origins. Origins, the attitude or, or again, the sentiment of origins. Like a, a genealogy statement from Ancestry.com, it's, it, this verse here, it gives us some context to his own origin as well as Christ. It's verse 31. And John the Baptist is still speaking directly to his own disciples. And he says, he who comes from above, the he is Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth, John the Baptist and every other human being, is from earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, first, clearly here, when, when John states that Jesus is above all, he, he's not merely referring to his location. I mean, he's speaking here also to his authority. That the one from the location of heaven has authority over the entire universe, created universe. He, he's not simply a man from Nazareth. He is from above, and he is Lord over all. And wow, this, this brings us right back to the very first verses in this gospel. Look with me just for a moment here at John 1.1. 1, 1. Just a few pages back, John 1, 1. 
Many of you know these verses. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse three, there's not one atom of the entire created order in which Jesus does not have authority. It says, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, there's that word, nothing. Nothing came into being that has come into being. So in our passage this morning, we see that John is, John the Baptist has been trained well. He's been trained well. He knows his theology. And that is why he stated in, in chapter 3, verse 31, that Jesus comes from above. He's, he's above all. It's a reaffirmation of this important truth. And you know, I need to say this, whether we recognize his origin and his authority or not, it doesn't alter the fact that he owns it all. He owns it all. Abraham Kuyper in his commentary says, the day when Jesus returns, when, when he comes back in the second coming, he's just simply going to arrive and say, it's all mine. In a sense, yes, because he owns it all. He owns it all. And John the Baptist here, he's contrasting his origin with the Messiah's. Again, verse 31, he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. John's saying, hey, I, I'm not as important as you, I, I, as, as Jesus. I'm not as important as you even make me out to be. I, I'm not some rock star. I'm not some uh, famous athlete. I'm not some celebrity. And even that, you know, there's an old saying, never meet your heroes. You ever heard that before? Because what happens when you meet your heroes? You find out that there's much more to them than the polished appearance that we always see. So their identity, we start to, we start to see some imperfections that are there. We, we start to see some shortcomings that are taking place. We find flaws when that happens. And John is, is saying, I am simply a second-hand teacher. I'm just a, a weak man following an omnipotent God. And this is why he repeats at the end of the verse, he says here, he who comes from a heaven is above all. From heaven, he's above all. You remember in the, um, in the book of Acts, when Cornelius, he fell at the feet uh, of Peter in an attempt to worship him? Do you remember that? Uh, chapter 10, I think that is. There, there's shock and awe in those words because Peter is being mistaken for divine being and Peter wanted nothing to do with robbing the true one of his glory. And he says, I am only a man myself. Before they said, it says here, but Peter, 10 to 26, but Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I am only a man myself. Stand up. No, don't do that. And John the Baptist was called the greatest man who had ever lived. The greatest man who had ever lived. <clears throat> Excuse me. But even so, in his own words, he who is of the earth is from earth and speaks of the earth. That is his origin. That's his um, limitation. John was very human in contrast to the God-man Jesus, and, and he makes it clear. He understands the divine origin of Jesus Christ. He is the uncreated son of God who 
entered into human history through the womb of Mary by the Spirit of God in his incarnation. Yes, he is truly God. He is God and truly man, as human as human can be. But John is saying, look, don't, don't, don't let that distract you from his heavenly origin. Don't lose sight. Yes, you're seeing him as a man, but there's much more to him than that. Much more. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of this, all of this, seeing the sovereign grace of God in our lives, the unspeakable privilege we have to be loved and used of him, and, and to be reminded of the deity of Christ, that he is God and we are not origins, these three unexpected responses from John are not only humble and doctrinal, they serve as reminders for each of us, for each of us. No measure of success is ours alone, none. We've got to be clear on that, and we've got to be careful with that. We want to be sure to give God the glory, give him the first place in it all, and that begins in the heart. And John, as we've said already, he passed the heart test, right? I mean, didn't he? Competition, no. Ownership is not compatible in that way with, with ministry. It's, it's not yours. It's not truly yours. So don't be so territorial. It's your unspeakable privilege to serve others. And that is the sentiment of this passage. Which brings us, lastly, to John's support of Jesus' words. Remember I said we have the, the setting We have the sentiment, and now we're looking at the support here. And look at verse 32. 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. I love uh, divine pronouns. And I actually have a pet peeve. There are certain translations, I'm not going to call them out now. I'm an NASB guy, I think you can tell already, but there are a number of wonderful beautiful core translations, but some translations don't capitalize those divine pronouns. You know what I mean? Like I can read a book, like even in my own book, like when, if, if there was a mistake like that, I would be twitching because I want to give him honor, even in just the written language. Some of you are nodding your heads because you're like that too, right? So like you see he, and it's a lowercase he, a lowercase h, and you're like, no, no, capitalize that, right? And I'm thankful the NASB does that in most instances. And so this is such a great verse. It says, what he, capital H, has seen and heard, meaning the truth while in heaven from God the Father, of that he testifies, referring to his current preaching that people are flocking to hear. And John says, no one receives his testimony. Oh, he, Jesus, is drawing the numbers, but this is important, the reality of total depravity remains total depravity no one receives certainly without a work of the holy spirit back in verse 11 jesus says the same thing you do not accept our testimony that's because it's not an earthly message it's not an earthly message it's not fortune cookie theology do you know what i mean uh tim challies number of years ago you can look this up it's still there you'll have fun with it an online quiz It's called Joel Osteen or Fortune Cookie. Google it. Not right now. Stop. We're not done yet. 
Joel Osteen or Fortune Cookie. The challenge is to read a quote, then decide which are from Joel Osteen and which are from Fortune Cookies. Uh, it is, it's difficult to discern. <laughs> Some of them are really tough, uh, but check it out. Uh, because, to my point, if I haven't lost you, the message is an earthly one. It's an earthly message. People do not want to hear the undiluted truth of the gospel. People do not want to be told that they are in sin. They will most often, if you've ever experienced this, if, even in a counseling situation, there's two things that likely can happen in a counseling situation when you're dealing with the sin of another person, right? You know where I'm going to go? They're either going to head in the direction of repentance. You need to be patient. It may take time, but God's grace will win out in that. Or they will turn on you. They'll turn on you. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony. Okay, so there are some, a few who will receive it. He, the believer, who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. John the Baptist is making it clear here that by the work of the Spirit, he has personally declared what Jesus has said concerning himself, our sin, heaven, hell, all of it is true. New King James Version, another great translation, uses the word certified. That's a great word. Certified. Stamped it. Set his seal on it. Fully embraces it. Endorses it. And you can add my name to the list. My salvation has come from the words of Christ in scripture to my eyes and ears. I've received it and set, in a sense, my seal upon it. Can you say the same? Are you in full support? Have you set your seal upon the words of Christ? What do you mean? Well, what was just said here in the text, that God is true. Look, if, if you don't believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, then guess what? You're stating that he lied, which he didn't, but you're stating that he lied. God lied. So don't hold to some half-truth that, that you believe in God, just not Jesus and his words. If you reject Christ, you're saying that God is a liar. I'm not making this up. Listen to 1 John 5.10. Listen carefully to 1 John 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a, a liar, a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Verse 33, one more time. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God, that God is true. I trust that God has done this in your own heart and your own soul. Next verse, we're nearing the end of this great testimony, the last testimony of John the Baptist, verse 34. For he, again Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. For he, God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. By the way, do you see the Trinity? Here's a good quiz. Can you spot the Trinity in the verse? And you, do you see that there? It is as God that Jesus is given unlimited access 
to the Spirit by the Father, and it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit, one of the many ministries of the Holy Spirit to share the words of the Father through the Son. So God the Father has given God the Son his words by the way of the Spirit of God. He gives the Spirit, the text says here, without measure. And then adds in in verse 36 an interesting perspective. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You know, we often look at the gospel from our perspective. I want to be careful with this. Don't take this too far, but it's almost selfishly that we look at the gospel, like the gospel is about us. And and in a sense it is. Please don't misunderstand me here. There's nothing wrong with that. But think on this. We are, we are the love gift from the Father to the Son. We are the love gift from the Father to the Son to worship him forever. God is is glorified by his, his eternal love relationship with his Son. God will give his Son all his creation in its final form, the new heavens, the new earth, he will give him the, un, the, the redeemed, excuse me, humanity, the redeemed humanity as, as love gifts from the Father to the Son. Why? God is love. God is love. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What a beautiful picture there. Which brings us to the final words in the final testimony of John the Baptist. These are all John the Baptist's words. I have a heading in my Bible, not inspired. I have it at just before verse 22, and it says John's last testimony, meaning John the Baptist, and that's exactly what we have here. These are all his. And he ends his testimony, which is wonderful, with an invitation. An invitation. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If there is something to remember about this sermon today, it's not the Joel Osteen quiz. It's this. It's this. Please listen. If there's anything to take away, if I had to pick one thing that you could take away, it's this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Has it. Has it. He doesn't have to wait to receive it. The believer's gift of life is received and then sealed until the day of redemption. If you believe, you've received it. You have it. It's yours. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. We get that. But he who does not, look at the word that's there. Obey the Son will not see life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. John goes from uh, believing to obeying here. The gospel's a command. Do you ever see it that way? The gospel is a command. Again, it's not a recommendation. If you believe, then you've already obeyed. But if you have not, if you do not, then you have not obeyed and you will not see this eternal life. Instead, it says in our text, but the wrath of God abides on him. You remember the saying, um, hate the, the sin, love the sinner? I mean, there's a problem with that statement, isn't there? I mean, 
to love them, we want to love them, we want to share the truth. I, I'm not denying that. that. That's very important, certainly, yes. But is the wrath of God on the person or the person's sin? But the wrath of God, end of verse 36 here, abides on him. On him. And so you have a choice. You have a choice. Believe, set your seal upon the words of Christ and receive eternal life, or disobey. Affirm that God has lied, which he hasn't, and the wrath of God will abide upon you. You know, it sounds like John 3.16. We know some, some portions of John 3.16, but how about this? Believe and you will not perish, not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. So it's the eternal life or eternal wrath, heaven or hell. And John the Baptist ends with invitation, with an invitation. He, he's a gospel preacher in this text. And I pray that you've heard his words. He is saying, repent, repent of your sin. Believe that Jesus is Lord and receive eternal life. Sounds like John 10, uh, Romans 10, 9, doesn't it? If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Because in every single word we've covered today from John, we see that he, he fully understood that it is Jesus. It is Jesus who must increase, but I must decrease. May that be our sentiment as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this morning, for the, the joys which are ours by your sovereign hand, by your, uh, your sovereign grace. What is it that we have received that has not come from your hand, uh, from above? Even the privilege of being gathered here together to, to contemplate your truth, and our Savior, to sing songs, to encourage one another, even to, to give, to, to serve, to pray together. It is an unspeakable privilege. May our purpose, our priority this week and every week, should you tarry, be the same. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. May we love you more. May we serve you more faithfully. Bless us for your glory on this Lord's day, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.